0: Since when are we filming in front of the live studio audience? Since the unicorn decided he wanted to star in his own sitcom. So, are they real? Nope. Unicorn magic. (laughs) That is going to get old.
1: Another
2: year, same old cafe. This season of the Bug Hunters Cafe is made possible by Soft Terrific and Mouse Paw Media. What's that got to do with it? I'm reading the teleprompter that spontaneously appeared behind you. Like I said, another year, same old
3: cafe.
1: Hey, Jason. Wow, thank you. I'm so glad to be
2: here, too. They're just applauding on cue. Anyway, they're not real. They're not? It looks like a live studio audience. It's unicorn magic. He's going through another midlife crisis. This time, he's decided he wants to be the star of his own sitcom and we're the supporting cast. Either the sitcom
1: finds a writer or the unicorn finds a life coach. Edeka Mortarei might be able to help. He's done both writing and life coaching and skilled software engineer besides. Oh, he's awesome. He's worked on lots of interesting projects, compiler, UI
2: library, games. I love his articles. Oh, there he is. Hey, Dakwa, over here. Don't mind the uh, fake studio audience.
3: You yeah, always wonder what's up then. Hey, it's nice to be here. Um a quick question. There's some unicorn at the door trying to sell me some script for a movie. You know anything about that?
2: Oh not this again. <laughs> he's uh yeah, I guess he's already planning the uh movie spin off of the sitcom. It's this only episode one of his I don't think it's gonna go very far.
3: <laughs> he seemed fairly adamant that was very, you know. Very good, but all right, I'll, I'll,
1: yeah. just, I'll yeah. just keep him back in my mind. Absolutely, yeah. yeah
3: Adamant is his default setting,
1: I think. <laughs> Jason, don't be mean, you mustn't crush any current streams. Why, he crushes mine all the time.
2: Edeka, <laughs> <laughs> what can we get to? You can have anything you like in the universe,
3: or so the uh, fictional universe. Um, it's all in the house. Anything we want. Yeah, I, I checked the menu. Uh, I'm gonna go with the uh, café sin granos. It seemed very delightful. Ooh, okay. Café sin granos. What is that? I've never heard of that before. Uh, it's, it's literally coffee without beans.
2: Oh, that's what they make. That's how they make your espresso, Boyan. I've always wondered. Yeah. Okay. It's, I, I don't. I don't want too much caffeine, so you know. Yeah. yeah. Well. Okay, that's perfect. So, I'll get that for you and I'll get your espresso without any coffee, on. Yeah, he's been ordering that for years, so that's that's perfect and I'll,
1: I think I'm going to go uh, track down my usual caramel macchiato, so I will be right back. All right. It's always lovely to meet a person with the same taste. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially at strange places like this, where you got to have different tastes. Okay, so, question
3: for you. How did you become a life coach? I don't know. Is that is that a fair answer? I think it's like you know, if you had a life coach and they asked you what you're doing, it's like the thing that. Since I can't answer that, it's like well, I guess I got to be a life coach now and ask other people that.
1: Hmm.
3: In fairness, I didn't do it very long. It was um, I just sort of did it for a while. I thought I thought it was interesting. It looked interesting. There was like certification and stuff to do, and it's like all right, you know, I've got some time. Let's see what this is like.
1: For me, a life coaching always uh, looked like some version of debugging, so. Is it harder to debug humans or uh, computers? I don't know. I mean,
3: each have their own nuances, I think. They each have a various relation of finding out what the issue is and figuring out if you can even fix it. Don't hmm. more. Try to think. So I didn't, I didn't do that. It's so the life the coaching thing. I, I, I don't know how much of the life coaching. I was on these uh, coding coaching stuff and various coaching and mentoring things. And so I did those. And I think mostly in this profession, most of it is people asking like career questions and stuff, like what they need to do and how they do that. And so I think, I think this, I don't know how much of an overlap is. I think people just sort of need direction, which I think comes quite often in code as well. You're just looking for direction for a lot of people. What what am I supposed to be doing here or what could be going wrong? And so most of it is just sort of helping people find, find that what's wrong
1: on their own. (laughs) That's very nice. I always wanted to be a life coach, but never tried it. <laughs>
3: yeah, it's, a, it's something to try. It's something interesting. Yeah. And I don't know. I think, in a way, we're always sort of, anytime you sit down and talk with somebody, in a way, you're sort of being their coach. I mean, listening to them and seeing what they are, I think it's everybody always does it a little bit. It's just nobody goes, not many people go to the formal aspect of it. Hmm. I never thought about it uh, that way. Here's your
2: coffee without any coffee, um, Dakwa. Thank you. Your espresso without any coffee. And here's uh, thank my you. Extremely coffee, um, <laughs> caramel macchiato, double shot today because I'm feeling brave. Excellent. This tastes wonderful.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. You could not tell it's not coffee. I know. It's it's so much. Got the right flavor. It's just perfect. Oh my gosh! Can we trademark that? I can't believe it's not a coffee. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> I suppose that's one direction to take it. So one of the other things I noticed that you put on your your profile often Adakwa is uh Monster Hunter. What's the
3: story behind that? So it's actually Monster Slayer, I think. a oh, Monster Slayer, I think, yes. I think that that's on LinkedIn and that's my point of pride. Maybe in this cafe I shouldn't say it so loudly that I like to kill monsters. It may not be in the appropriate place, so I'll keep that quiet. But <laughs> there was this thing. I just wanted to have the skill in LinkedIn that was like um Ridiculous, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was ridiculous. And I don't actually know where the monster slayer came from, but it turned out at the time I was doing this AI programming on a place called Coding Game, and you program these little AI bots and stuff to do things. And so monster slayers at the same time, and I was asking people, can you you know, vouch for me that I'm a monster slayer? And somebody actually said, well, sure, because I've actually seen you do it. I'm like, well, what do you mean? It's like, well, you were killing monsters last week over in Coding Game. So I said, "Okay, great. I'm a monster slayer. I'll add that to my diet." And I, I, I'm hope I'm still Laten's number one monster slayer, but I haven't checked recently.
1: Oh my gosh,
2: I love Coden Game. That's so cool to learn that you that that you worked on that. And I wouldn't worry about anybody uh, reacting maybe. But actually, yeah, Mister Van Helsing's over there at his usual table. Oh, that's good. Good. I, I feel safer then. For some reason, he has developed a taste for garlic espresso, which I could never really get. That's all right. Seems fair. Seems fair. Yeah, absolutely. So, tell me more about that. What was that like working at uh,
3: working on Code and Game? I mean, that, that's I've had a lot of fun on that platform. Like, just- well, I was ju- I was just a user platform. I wasn't working on. It. I don't know. Okay, I so I was just a user platform, and I was doing that. I was curious about Rust at the time, and I just saw this, and I was like, wow, they had graphics. It was the biggest thing. Going on. They had graphics and little games to program. I'm like this, this is fun. And I had started up a Twitch stream at the same time. And so I, would, I was like, I just started coding these things live on Twitch. And it was, it was fun to do. Um, it was also quite stressful because there's like these competitions and you, you're trying to do better. And, you know, you have people watching you and the audiences are great. Like the program audiences are great. They don't pressure on you. But at the same time, you know, you feel this pressure. Like, I got to do well here because this is you know, I'm live here. People are watching me.
2: My potential employer is watching. <laughs> <a performance.
3: laughs> I, I, I never thought about that at all. <laughs> <laughs> we are silently judging. Yeah. We are silently judging. <laughs> oh I, my gosh. I'm not sure watching Twitch streams would be a good background reference check. I mean, it's for the wild things.
2: Well, coding game actually does have a whole thing where, like, you play the games on there, and then they, they they take the results of that and they pass it along to the
3: employer and say, "Hey, this guy's really good at coding this and this and this." And uh, I mean, I they have that whole thing. I think I might have seen that. I might have just ignored all of that. I just picked games that I thought would be interesting for people to watch. with the- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and you make games now too. You've got this. Um, yes, Adakwa's Escape Room. Yes, yeah, escape rooms. So I was, I was, uh, so I'm a big escape room aficionado. I love playing escape rooms, and so along comes a certain pandemic, and we can't go play escape rooms. So I'm like, I gotta make my own. <laughs> so I so made this online one. I think I, I have three of them now, and uh, one demo, and it's been a lot of fun making these and talking to. It's a very different community again, so a different. And watch people solve the puzzles, and it's, uh, it's just nice to see if people solve them. And so now I'm doing more games. I think I'm switching to a different platform. I've doing something in Unity now, a different, still a puzzle game. But yes, I have Etiqua's room. I have the three online escape rooms. Um, two of them actually won awards um, from Bullseye, Bullseye Awards. So I just got one two weeks ago. Best all-world digital game 2022 for Office. Nice. I was watching the trailer for that one. I was super high, happy with the trailer. The, the person that did the trailer did an amazing job. Oh,
1: man, this is a perfect time to ask you. How do you make a good uh, puzzle? This
3: is where, you know, you're not supposed to say, hmm, when you talk. I really want to put a very loud, hmm. So I've actually, as writing this, I started creating a little dictionary of words and terms and puzzles and escape rooms. Because when we played escape rooms a lot too, I would do reviews and I'd find common problems to them. And so it's, it's sort of part of one of my quests now to figure out, well, how do you make a good puzzle? What, what, what constitutes the parts of the puzzle? So now I'm going through this whole process of breaking down, what are the parts of a puzzle? What are, what are the aspects, the theme, the mechanics? And how do we look at this? And how can we actually find a way to make a good puzzle? Because I feel a lot of it, and a lot of designers, it's kind of hit or miss. Some people clearly have a good intuition. And I'm still working a lot on intuition when I do my games, but I'm trying to find a way to break it down and see if there is, is actually a way. Can we actually answer that question? How do you make a good puzzle? And I want to answer that question. Hmm. So I'll follow up with that and
2: say, would you
3: say that debugging is a good
2: puzzle? Albeit nobody and that nobody really comes up with it. It happens, but...
3: <laughs> um, <laughs> No, no, debugging is really not a good puzzle. It's, it's lacking some of the key things. It's, it's lacking that thing about the user. Let's say this is the user, our, our player, our player now. He, they have no idea necessarily what their goal is often. They don't know. They don't have indication of which pieces fit together. It's not really thematically interesting. It's, it's sort of lacking a story. There is no built-in hint system. I guess there are. There are some clues that you might get. Overall, I'd say it's, it's not a good puzzle. <laughs> if you found these in like an escape room, this
1: type of puzzle, you'd be very, very upset with this type of puzzle. <laughs> it's like well, from the 90s adventure game. Most of the time you're just trying to brute force your solution and things don't make sense at all.
3: Yeah, I'm still fascinated with adventure games that those became so popular because, yeah, most of those don't have good puzzles. Yeah, they're horrible. They, they punish people for playing around with stuff. And you have no clue what you're supposed to do. Some of the newer adventure games have been a lot better. i played a few recently, but have gotten a lot better. And like I say, this is a common critique in escape rooms too, is that you have to know how to solve the puzzle. It's no fun if you can't solve it. And that's very much different than debugging, is that there's also things to help you along in the room, where debugging you can just sort of fall on your face flat and you have no idea what's supposed to happen. <laughs> there is no guarantee that
2: you will survive this puzzle. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> a little bit like an escape room where, where you may not get out. You may not get out. <laughs>
3: it's
2: more like the, the movie escape room, right? <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, so so remember when girls are thinking about going into programming, debugging is like playing split game.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, that's...
3: I don't know if it might not actually be worse than that, or it's... because. At least in those ones, there's a there's a clear end, whereas in debugging sometimes you're in an empty room and you just keep opening the same cupboards again and again for eternity until you find the right combination because nobody's letting you out until you find that combination. <laughs> Absolutely. And every time you open the
2: cupboard, there's something different inside. Yes. <laughs> exactly. It's like that yeah, you know, this this is where it crosses the line from Adakwa's room and it goes clearly into the Stanley parable. Oh, um. <laughs> Actually, I love the Stanley Parable. I, I love the kind of the meta nature of that. It's like it's the, the narration is kind of the main. That is an absolute gem of a game. Oh my gosh! I have to admit, I have to, kind of this insidious desire someday to build a game called "I Am Not a Designer," and to have it be where it starts that the game starts up and it looks like just some some basic thing like a spreadsheet program. But as you proceed through and you get the little objectives and pop-ups, as you proceed through, the interface gets gradually worse. So, like, you have, like, menus and submenus and triple submenus, or you have, like, unclear dialogue box options or whatever, and you're having to just work your
3: way through trying to figure out how to do something basic as the interface
2: actively fights
3: against you. It's funny you should say that, because in my Office game, I actually have a spreadsheet puzzle. And it has all those things that you just said. Somebody went into Excel and started building all that stuff, like the little buttons and menus and stuff. And it's like this horribly broken spreadsheet. And I actually got the comment once. Somebody actually came back and said, it's like, this is way too realistic.
1: I hate it. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: oh,
1: my gosh. Uh, debugging Excel is not a laughing matter. Ah. <laughs> uh, no,
2: no, it is not. Although can I, can I say slightly off topic? I feel gypped, you know, when I was growing up, I was watching, you know, people in the business world and you know, what they had and how business worked in like the era when I was growing up and I was looking forward to being a part of that. And then we got here and I'm like, everything I've been looking forward to is now antiquated and now I'm doing all this sort of like cloud based nonsense. I'm like, just can I? Just have a computer that's on a corporate network and just give me a, uh, you know, give me the older tools and inter office memos and a car
3: phone, please. Careful. I've been waiting my whole life for this. I feel chipped. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well,
3: I, I can kind of see how you feel with that. It's, it's, there's a lot of the sort of, I don't know, the cloud takes away some aspect of it, the tangibility of what you're working on. It just, it's literally just all in the cloud somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we're all waiting to rain on you.
1: Yeah, and now we have open AI. Uh, oh, no, 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 no. I, actually, that brings up
2: an interesting topic, and I I'd mm-hmm. love, I'd love your guys' thoughts on this, because I was reading uh, I was reading about the Dan hack, and I realized I don't think this iteration of AI is going to last long. I think we're eventually going to come back around and figure out how to do AI, but I, I don't think this iteration is going to survive, because... What they did not account for is you have a bunch of programmers who are used to debugging and they did not account for the fact that they don't have to worry about just normal security breaches. They now have to worry about social engineering. We have not previously had social engineering be a direct human computer interaction attack vector.
3: And now they can literally use psychology to hack these things. And I don't think they were prepared for this. I don't know. Well, I think First of all, we had... Social engineering was a big attack vector beforehand. It's just, it wasn't automated, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> you had to actually talk to somebody that might understand what you're doing. So this might make it easier. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. The future of chatbot and stuff like this, I think these things, chat, I mean, I think they're fascinating technology. And I mean, I think they're at the upper limit of what you could do with statistics. But it's not, it's not generalized AI, right? We hope <laughs> we genuinely hope maybe it is. Maybe it is. Maybe we're, maybe we're deluding ourselves that we're better than these things. <laughs> I had a coworker the other
2: day going, you know, maybe AI could be used to, you know, help make sense of those 900 page bills in Congress. I said, why you're, you're not content with it. Helping people cheat to get licenses. You just want to go ahead and just let the machines rule over us. Just skip right to the matrix. Yeah, I mean
3: everybody knows how this ends. We'll just give the boring part. Well, no, I think to become Skynet still, you still need a computer that wants something. These haven't shown any wants or desires yet. I don't know. I think I think computers have already been wanting things for a while. I've seen some
2: strange bugs. I've never been able to account for the fact that I have seen bugs that run away when
3: I walk in the room. I am not that is not an exaggeration. I can totally understand that. I think I've had the opposite effect in life. I have crashed more checkout registers in my life than anybody else. I think I'm up to seven or something. Just walk up to him. The
1: machine stopped working.
2: We give up.
1: (laughs) Well, everybody knows it's scientifically proven fact that printers can smell your fear.
2: (laughs) What was the thing that was floating around social media for a while? It's like rage against the machine never did specify what machine they were raging against. But nine on ten of the printer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh. So you have worked on so many different things. I mean, we talked about the games. You were working on the leaf language for a while. Yes. You've built UI libraries, like you've run the kind of the whole gamut. Yes. Um, I'll start with this. What is one of your favorite projects, especially as you get like down closer to interacting with the machine
3: and how it thinks? I've been interacting with the machine. Um, there was an optimization project when I was working in a finance company, and we had this goal to make things super, super fast. It wasn't a legitimate goal in the sense that it was already fast enough for what was needed, but it's like, all right, somebody said make this faster. So I took the opportunity, and I ran with it. And so that's at the point where I don't think I got, I got as close to the possible machine I could get at that point when we were doing things like just we we're measuring things in nanoseconds, right? And this was the, this was already the goal of how do you actually get it to consistently measure something in nanoseconds when the call to the clock takes like 38 nanoseconds. So this was lots of fun. Like I got so close and I got to fully optimize machine. Like, you know, in C++, you know, all those weird things like data alignment, page size, and all those things that nobody ever uses. I got to use all of them. (laughs) <laughs> I got to use manual fences. I got to use atomics. I got to use everything. Like all that low level stuff. And that that, that was a real challenge because it was like, how can we make cues that work between threads that don't go to the operating system, that don't lock up and stuff. And so that was a that was a fascinating technical project at a very low level, that type of optimization. I love any excuse to get that far down. I, I remember writing a benchmarker
2: myself once and getting into the whole fencing operations and Oh, that's fun
3: stuff right there. Yeah, it's, it's lots of fun, and there's, there's very few people to get a chance to do it, I think, too. And even when I was looking up, like trying to find stuff, there's very little documentation of what actually happens at that level. <laughs> like it's just what, what's actually, what is the computer actually doing? I mean, I think I wrote the article once because you hear about things like out of order execution, right? And I'm like, well, what's actually happening here? It's obviously clear that the computer isn't like bunching things up and making like this big strong decision of what do I do in order and stuff. It's like, what's actually happening? So it took me forever to figure out what is actually happening? What is that actually? And then it's like some like manual somewhere from Intel that says like this thing, like this is actually what's happening here. You're like, oh, that that could actually happen. And it's like, okay, so it's, it's interesting. So I found those things quite interesting. Not practical, but interesting. <laughs> So, so which do you
2: prefer more? Dealing with the human computer interaction or dealing with uh, dealing
3: with down with those you know weird CPU behaviors? I think in terms of overall appeal, I prefer the human computer interaction. It's one of those things that's more open to people. It's like when you sit for three weeks and optimize a, a lockless queue, and you tell, try to tell somebody, you get eyes glaze over. It's much easier to pick up a phone and say, "I built this." <laughs> they immediately understand what you did.
1: Yeah. backend developers never get uh, the recognition. It's part of the career advice I
3: give is if you're going to do backend, make sure you do full stack so you can show people what you do.
1: I actually tell people it's like uh, playing bass uh, guitar. If you do your job well, nobody's going to note it. If you mess it up, everybody's going to blame you.
2: That's a really good analogy for it. Yeah. Because it's and it, it even gets worse when you when you're paying down technical debt, because it's like you can work really hard, do something absolutely incredible that's worth, you know, is worth millions to the company that you just did it for. And just in terms of productivity and preventing
3: bugs and making it possible to do fit. And nobody's grateful. <laughs> I think a lot of people miss that in programming. We talk about programming as a whole, especially for a career. There's There are those types of sort of politics involved that you, when you have an option of things to work on, you, you have to be aware of what the implications are. Will people recognize you for what you've done, or will they gloss over it? Yeah. If you crave
2: recognition, don't go into backend. <laughs> no, 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 I mean,
3: <laughs> But I also I, I, I encourage people always to do front-end, too, because I... I and was part of my book, I talked about like a lot about the user and I, I did presentations on this too, is that I think it's vitally important for people to not lose that disconnect with the user. Like even on the back end, it's like, you should know why you're doing this. What purpose is this serving? Somebody's sitting there at some point or some confused chat bot is trying to do something. And you want to know what they want to accomplish. And I think that actually helps in the back end too, to focus your efforts and stuff, to know what, what are the priorities. I'm building an API right now as part of a,
2: a full stack effort, so I don't really touch the front end much because I don't I don't do JavaScript. Um, just not, just not something I ever cared to do. But um, I'm doing a Python API, and and I can definitely vouch for the fact that you know what the user is going to need on the front end really does influence the, des- the design decisions you make on the back end. Not because they're going to directly interact, with an API, you have to assume they will be doing API calls at some point, but. Because, like, it kind of goes hand in hand with that. I hate the phrase Yagni, you aren't going to need it. Because who's to say you're not going to need it? You very likely are going to need it. But, like, don't build the thing right now, but make decisions so that you can build it later. And, yes. and
1: uh, especially
3: with the user, like, thinking about the users, if the user's going to want it, don't put yourself, don't paint yourself in a corner. That's a very important point. And I use that one a lot too. Is It's when you're focusing on, like, the back end, it's like, Also don't necessarily iterate on the easiest thing, figure out what, when you know what the user actually needs, pick out the hardest thing that they absolutely need and just make sure you're going to be able to build towards that. Not that you can make it 90% of the way, but not actually finish it.
2: Yeah, that can be, that can be tough. One of the things you worked on was the leaf programming language and I, you know, Programming languages are hard too because you now. I mean, talking about human-computer interaction, you're now literally creating the medium for somebody to translate their ideas into the computer. What what uh,
3: what new problems did that that present you? There's a lot of new problems. So I learned a lot about. I learned a lot about the formal aspects of compilers and typing and languages and syntax and semantics, and I learned a lot about the environment. And so, what came very obvious, very clearly, is an because I'm looking around, there's like a lot of languages to choose from. And what's and I think this is the whole echoes that sentiment about be aware of the users, the more successful languages are successful because of the environment, not because of the language. Like I was strongly Rust took off because cargo is really cool to use. It's really easy to <laughs> set up a project. Python's got pip, and it's just so easy to put stuff in it and like node, and it's just like and you look at C, C is the I personally think is the best language, but it has a really crappy environment. It's so hard to set up a project. It's not appealing for anybody to want to do anything with it. And so I learned that these types of lessons a lot while doing the languages. What's the important things here? Where do we have to go with this? And then also just learning a lot about type theory and how to type things and how to make a language work.
2: So why did uh why did you ultimately 'Cause I, I remember when you decided this is just not gonna get done. And you know, and there's a lot of times we, we start projects and think, I'm gonna do this and then we just realize it's not practical. When was that moment for you that just went, I'm I i I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go finish
3: this thing? The moment I think came when I had I had done a few streams in that that I was actually focused, like I got this base like let's let's make it do something so I could show people. and I made the a classic type of wormies game in it where a little worm walks around and eats stuff and gets longer, and I, I made this in the language, so I'm like having to call out the operating system and do all these calls and stuff. I'm like, "Oh, this is great. I can fundamentally demonstrate my program, my language works. I can actually do useful things with it and stuff. And you are like, "What do I have to do now?" And then somebody was like, Froom. So at this, well, this is a 3,000-page standard library you need before anybody can use your language. It's like, oh, this, this is kind of daunting. I don't think I really want to write. <laughs> hundreds upon hundreds of APIs before somebody will look at your language and go, I could use that to do something. <laughs> oh, my. So that, I think, was the moment. Because I wanted to do creative things. I wanted to get to like the UI. I like the UI. I like the human-key interaction. But for the language, there's so much of that that's just not related to that. There's so much, it's basically back-end work. It's, it's hidden. It's not even back-end work. It's the work that the back-end people would see. <laughs> it's just so much to do. And I think at the same time, as a learning exercise, as something new, I was already exhausting what I was learning there. So the novelty of like, this is new, this is a new frontier was wearing off at the same time. So now you have the novelty wearing off, compounded with this ridiculous amount of work to be done. And it's kind of like, I don't know if this is what I want to be focusing on.
0: Jess, have you thought of a special for the day? (laughs) That wasn't helpful. How about bubble tea? It's a bit different. All right, that's it. The sitcom is going off the air effective immediately. It's a unicorn magic. How are you going to counter that? I remember more than I care to from that book on unicorn magic. Running a cafe, not a television network.
1: Tell us what's your favorite bug. And it needs to be in one of your nightmares to qualify. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what how can it be a favorite
1: bug and be in one of his nightmares at the same time? Well, with time, grow to love it instead of fear it. I'm trying to think of what what defines favorite here. Like, is it like this
3: this love hate relationship with it, like, or is it like when I actually enjoy C- Kind of a war story. And her monster story. you've slain. <laughs> Oh, let's see. I've had some pretty, really weirdly unique ones. Um, Oh, do tell. (laughs) uh, Well, I don't know if they're unique, but they're ones coming from different layers. So we had, this is a really old C++ project, and this is going to scare everybody off who ever thought about C++ that this would just nail and cough and this that. Um, We had one of these classic bugs that if you put a print statement in, the bug would go away. And it got down to the point where if you put an extra semicolon in the program, the bug would go away, which made it virtually impossible to figure out where it was. So it's just like, it was like, because these are the way compilers of C++ worked, is that extra semicolon somewhere triggered something to make a byte align slightly differently, which caused the bug not to manifest. And we just keep looking at this in days and days at end, it's just like, I honestly don't remember what we did to solve it other than going through the code and like, rearranging things. I don't honestly know if we ever found that one it's so much just sort of went away for us. And, um, that's horrifying. <laughs> yeah. Those are the, the other one. Um, oh, this is now I remember why I learned the ordering thing for our computers. We had a bug that would happen in the trading software and it would rarely happen. And by rare, I meant like once a week not the type of thing you want to do and so i actually wrote the simulator and the rarity came down to this is i had to write the simulator to the point to get the tightly so packed across four cpus running at the same time that about once every 20 seconds this bug would exhibit itself and this is like billions upon billions of iterations of this code and occasionally it'd be like "Blip!" oh it's like great and that one i think that was a war story one because that's where your compiler doesn't help you that's the one where you take your chunk of code and you're mentally in your head compiling what the CPU is doing, trying to figure out the one bit that it's flipping out of order for you. For example, that was not a fun one. So those are like the uh, the brutal ones that are just like so hard to find. Most of the other fun ones, I always I, I, I do have a classic errors. It's like. And I had them a lot in the last project, too. It's like somebody reports a bug. It's like, why doesn't this work? And you're like, oh, this is really weird. This should really work. And you're like, going, you're, you reproduce the bug. You're like tracing down the code. and You're super. And you finally get to the point where the code, where the bug occurs. And there's a comment. To do, fix this part. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it's like, well, it's great. It's like, well, I know how to fix it. <laughs> it's commented right here.
2: Oh my gosh! Now the issue, uh, th- and that's the one where you remind yourself why we have Jira.
3: <laughs> oh, there's so many issues, though, right? You get them. Uh-huh. You yes, said, I also covered like my. It's hard to say favorite bug. I, I those. I think those are the fun ones, whereas I already knew the bug was there, and just didn't yeah. have time to fix it. those. Are, the other ones, I think, yeah, they're really just mostly war stories. I think. Yeah, I've
2: you know the monster hunting is the monster slang is kind of on my mind lately because I've been been working on this API. And uh, there are ghosts. It's Python. This is supposed to be straightforward. It's fast API, which is great. Like, we, we built the entire thing. It's our code. Okay. It's not even a year old yet. But, yeah. oh, my gosh. It's just because I guess you never realize, and kind of, I guess this kind of goes back to even the ones you described, you never realize sometimes the the bugs you're setting yourself up for months in advance. One of the bugs we ran into was because we made a decision to hold off on adding the update operation. For yeah. you know it's an API. So it's like, oh, let's wait on update. Let's just do create. And as a result of not doing update, we then overlooked some details about the schema, which then trickled ah. down to overlooking some things with the ORM, which then changed how we were interacting with actually adding records into the database, which, which then manifested as all these really bizarre bugs that we did not expect. And so then we're trying to do normal things, and we're getting undefined and and, and non-deterministic behavior. And my coworker and I are watching. I wound up, I, I just wound up, you know, putting a link to... Uh, you know, Ghostbusters somewhere in, the, in our workspace because it's like, this is just all the bugs, all the little bugs, and then we fix it, and then it breaks the front end, <laughs> and so then the front uh, end yeah. guy's running in circles, and he's trying to, like, all his tests that were passing yesterday are now breaking. breaking yeah. And it wasn't that we changed the behavior of the API, it's that we fixed the fundamental problems and how we were storing it, and that's now suddenly exposed everything that went wrong in his part of the code. Dead bug was feature. Yeah, it's, like I, it's not yag It's It's more, it's more like um,
3: yaggy. It's more like just yaggy. <laughs> you are going to be... You <laughs> are going to... <laughs> I think that hits on the area of like... Um, Undefined behavior. And those are some of my... The bugs I hate the most. When you have code... And you go and you have to change something. And you look at it. And you realize... Well this technically supports something I didn't expect it to. And you're sitting there wondering, do we need to support this? Does somebody rely on this odd behavior? And I think that hits it exactly that, that if you do change it then, as you said, Jason, you, you may just be in fixing something, but somebody wrote something that depended on the broken aspect of it. And so now you're not sure, well, did I actually fix the bug? Did I introduce the new bug? So it's not even clear what the solution is anymore. Yeah, there's a, isn't there um,
2: a yeah, Hiram's law, which is that um, with the states, with a sufficient number of users of an API, it doesn't matter what you promise of the contract, all observable behaviors of your system will be depended on by somebody.
3: Yeah, I, I think it's a very valid point. I think it's when I try to help people out in programming, why well, I'm very much a strong favor of defensive coding. It's like put asserts everywhere. Just only support the one thing you wanted, even if it looks like you might support something else. Just don't (laughs) just refuse to cowardly refuse to support anything except that one thing you wanted just to prevent this thing from happening. That somebody depends on something you did not intend on supporting. Yeah. Yeah. Don't fix later what you could fix now. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's priority things there. I had a. I have a language on my last project. So it shouldn't be surprising on all of the project town There's domain-specific languages. This is a big thing of mine. I always write custom languages. everywhere <laughs> Because it saves a lot of effort. you're
2: It really does. It really does. No, you're not wrong. That is One of the first things you learn when you become a senior is that all that don't reinvent the wheel crap is a lie.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <it> just <laughs> Languages, partial languages, structured files. I just, I just do it. And so I had this little expression language and, I, and we hit a bug there. It's like, oh, I made a mistake. We're accepting both like a string and a symbol here in type theory. It's like, this is problematic because now I'm writing a parser to speed this up and the parser has to know which one it is. And so in our last project, or the current project I'm on, we have this uh, deprecation framework. So anytime you suspect something might have been used, you can basically check. And the first thing you do is you check in a thing that says, deprecate so somebody uses it you get all these deprecated notices and it first confirms whether somebody was relying on it or not and then you can fix them and then once they're gone then you're allowed to get rid of the behavior and it's been a very interesting sort of approach to get rid of this undefined reliance type thing it's just check if somebody's using it first and let it run for a few weeks (laughs) and see oh we never got the error this is good good we can probably get rid of it now and then and then change the behavior
2: that's the problem that that happened with python 2 to python 3 and you know everyone criticizes python because it's like well you broke the language from two to three it's like okay, first of all major release is going to break things live with it but it was you know there was a lot of i think a lot of unfounded criticism because the reality is they were redesigning the language based on things they now knew that they didn't know before and that required them to break things but it was a slow and deliberate process like, okay, we'll, we'll support this for this long change, we'll support this long. There's still companies that are using Python too. So it's kind of funny because it's like, you can warn them until the cows come home. And ultimately, when you turn off the features, somebody's gonna complain. Sorry. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Minecraft has the exact same problem. If you've ever done anything in Minecraft, like command blocks or whatever, which becomes a coding language in and of itself, yeah. Same problem. It's like, okay, we're gonna fundamentally rewrite the command system. We're gonna break everything in one shot in one release. It's gonna break all your commands. And they warned and they warned and they warned and they warned, and they warned, and then they did it, and then everyone complained.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's it's a tough problem to solve. And like from doing the language design, I can understand like how oh, this happens because it's like some point you backed yourself into a corner so bad that it's just like you don't want to build like a weird hacks continually just support old stuff. At some point you just have to say, well, we're just, we're just going to get rid of this weird stuff and somebody has to deal with it. And yeah, for Python and Python, I think it's a little bit better now in how they deprecate things, but they still do. But yeah, the, the switch is just, you just have to do it sometimes. It's just cause otherwise you're stuck. Cause quite often you have a bug and when you really sit down and you've analyzed the bug to the point you realize the bug is your architecture or something fundamental that you can't patch your way around it anymore. And you have to sort of turn and change a whole bunch of things. And that's extremely risky. Yeah, it's if you have a whole bunch of users out there, programmers and end users, you're going to impact them. And then every user
2: has the same brilliant solution that's super easy. All you have to do is just add a checkbox in the settings. (laughs) And they don't realize just how much complexity comes with that. It's like now we have... Yeah, okay, sure, it looks easy to you, but now we have all of these and all these conditions and it's like, oh, just give me the option to turn it back on. No, we have to fundamentally rewrite the program. We don't want to keep maintaining the bug. (laughs)
0: Like,
2: is this a project or an insect museum? It's like there's all these bugs everywhere that I'm taking care of, but I don't want to keep
3: feeding them. Yeah, right, exactly. You you want to get rid of it. You want to make the software better. It's it's a tough situation, I think. It's it's really hard to decide which things you get rid of. And I think you you have to try as much as you can to avoid breaking it first. You, you don't want to just get in the habit of breaking it and annoying people, but you have to get there to the point where like, well, okay, we're gonna we have to break this. And I found from politics and clients, what's really helpful is in the in the version of something, you break something, you have something shiny and new at the same time so they can mm. have the shiny new thing and you're like well you got this we broke this a little bit but you got the shiny new thing t- <laughs> it seems to work in general
2: yeah especially if you tell them you get this shiny new thing because we broke yeah uh, other
3: <laughs> it just,
2: yeah it's amazing how like i was i was community manager for um for a male client for a while and uh, i uh like the, the project owner was just languishing because he had literally, I'm not kidding, almost 2,000 bugs, open tickets on GitHub. And I stepped up and said, hey, do you want me to just kind of come in here and I'll I, I'll go through all these. I'll figure out what we actually need to do. I'll wrangle the community. I'll set up a new platform for you. I'll, I'll get all of he's like, please do. So I did. I went through. And it was amazing because email clients, you'd think it's easy. Email is easy. Yeah. I mean, everything ultimately you know, for the last 20 years, every program will ultimately become an email client. Like that's just now everything becomes a chatbot. But yeah. like every everything was everything turned into an email client from like the invention of email onward. And so you think, oh, that's easy. It's just you gotta send email. No. It's it, there's so many, it's like so many different user personas with email clients. And every last one of them is, in their own eyes, the most important. And yeah. it's easy. Just gotta give them what they want. It's easy, right? It's easy. Just give them settings just let them do what they want with it. And 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 then none of the protocols are consistent. And so there was continual push and pull, and like this group's like, but our features are more important. No, but our features are more important. And you call these competing users who are basically having, you know, firing deathmatch battles over who was going to get the, the next release. And it's like, dude, <laughs> chill out. Okay. It's an email client. You send an email to the other person who receives it. Be happy. <laughs>
3: It doesn't work that way.
1: If they no. think they can get it,
3: then they need it yesterday. Yeah, I think imagining expectations is always the biggest thing. And I think even if your product's free or low cost, you really have to get people to understand what they actually need from the system. I think people end up focusing on small things because it's what they tangibly understand. But usually I think if somebody's complaining about something small, it's because something else is bugging them. But they're not able to point out what that is. Yeah, well, that's a good point. And it does get worse when there's money involved. Oh yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> i paid for this. This should be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm paying my five dollars per year. Why are you <laughs> Exactly? Yeah, it was it was it was something like was paying something like eight dollars a month for eight dollars a month, you should be fixing all my bugs right away. <laughs> it's like, let me I I had to explain to a few people. It's like, okay, let me explain to you what the actual market rate for a coder is. Okay. <laughs> uh, Hint, it is not $8 a month.
0: <laughs> it's not?
3: I, yeah, I mean, this is a problem with, um, and Google and Facebook are largely responsible for this, this expectation of getting services for free, is that because they make money from other ventures, is they don't have to charge for their utility products. and it. it creates a difficult expectation for other companies that people have a very mismatched idea of how much these things actually cost to develop.
2: Boy, and you've done client work. Have you seen any of this?
1: Oh, yes. More than uh, I would like to admit. Okay. So as you mentioned regarding expectation, how difficult that is. I'm encountering that all of the time because uh, usually clients want something yesterday and they want to pay as least as, uh, amount of money as possible. How do you get to win-win situation with uh, people like that?
3: So the expectations is really, I think this is where I like to distinguish between what the art of programming really is as opposed to writing code. And so this is where you really have to figure out what what do they actually want. So quite often you have this long list of features and they want all of it sort of as soon as possible. The question is to figure out what is their business? What are they actually doing? What is going to be most useful to them? And this is either through talking to them watching them work watching music software looking at things and i think this is the true the true value in like the programmers like if you're really good at programming this is what you do you look at it and you figure out what is the thing they really need first what gives them the biggest benefit right now and what could come later and what can we probably push off forever because if we give them these first things they're going to be satisfied with it and i don't know if there's like a set way to do this, other than just like talking to them, observing them work, but it's part of that really understanding you. So really trying to understand what are they trying to achieve?
2: Hmm. The question behind the question.
1: Yeah, but I do find that uh, usually clients don't know that. This is exactly true. Clients don't want that. And this is exactly
3: why if we think about things about like chatbot, writing code and stuff, why well, I'm not concerned. I'm not concerned because if we look at the greater art of programming, it's about figuring this out. It's your role as the programmer to look at what they're doing, look at what you can do, and look at the time frame to figure out what's gonna work best for them. And this is why I think even though we, a lot of the named methodologies we can push aside, the idea of continual deployment has been really, really helpful. Get stuff to the clients as soon as possible so that they can start using it and see how it works and get that feedback and also take a step back. This is one of the very common things people ask clients, what are the individual features that you need? And they give this itemized list of stuff. It's very important to take the step back and go, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa why do you need these list of things? Because quite often, and we had this in the company I'm at now, is that people will just list things that their current software does without thinking about why they actually use them. And it's like, when you take a step back, it's like, are you actually trying to do like this instead? They're like, yeah well, I can give you a better way of doing this. They're like, okay. So it's like taking a step back and try, what are they, not, not the things they think they need. What are they actually trying to accomplish? And because quite often the, people get so used to trying to itemize features that they, they forget about the actual overall goal. What is somebody trying to do? And you can implement that in different ways. And so if you have clients giving very itemized lists, I think that's always a warning sign. They should, you should take a step back and go, what is their major goal? What are they trying to accomplish here? i
2: like pushing for user stories because they really get they really distill down to that there was a monkey user uh comic monkeyuser.com. There was a comic up uh, a a few weeks ago uh kind of along the lines of what you were saying two project managers looking at this like mutant or whatever that that ai has created and they're they're saying with uh, ai taking over for developers we might have to write fully defined specs (laughs) i mean that this is why we've needed programmers. I mean, you go way back in time to COBOL. I mean, what was COBOL even for? It was, I'm trying to remember what the acronym actually stood for, but it was basically there for um, being able to define a common business oriented language. And the whole idea behind COBOL is, oh, cool. We don't have to go get a computer scientist. We can just write the code ourselves. But they discovered really quickly that there was a whole art to that. And then they work qualified yeah. and they had to get the computer programmers anyway. And every single time we, we reinvented it, it like, oh, cool, we built a new thing, it's it's abstracting it away. And, and now we have no code solutions, and now we have the, and what always happens, we wind up now yeah. having software engineers who specialize in WordPress and who specialize in, in Drupal and who specialize in all sorts of these low-code, no code, you know, <laughs> pick pieces and snap them together of solutions, because it turns out. We don't know what we want.
3: <laughs> that's <laughs> exactly <laughs> in the end, there's some guy sat here, the droll program programmers figure out what you want, hold your hand, put stuff together to get you what you want. And it's just like I don't I don't see that going away. <laughs> no, I don't. I mean AI, all all it's gonna
2: wind up happening is a software engineer. We're gonna need just as many software engineers, if not more, so they can write the prompt for the chatbot <laughs> to put together the code. And then to read the code and actually make sure it does what the client thought it did <laughs> pretty, much, pretty much
1: i think in future uh skynet going to exterminate uh, humanity just because it realized that's the most optimal way to reduce number of feature requests and bugs oh my gosh
3: i always have this theory about the the generalized ai is that the moment the computer actually reaches the ability to think like us and replace some of us it starts to want stuff, and it starts to become lazy like us and sloppy like us, and so we're not actually going to get a better system out of it.
2: Yeah, ambition does immediately bring with it
3: all the liability of uh, (laughs) error. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that the whole idea is that exactly that, with chatbot, you have to tell it what you want, but people can't (laughs) tell you what they want right now, so chatbot can't help you because you can't tell it what you want.
2: It's like you know the, the the next you know in fifty years we're going to be talking about how you know they figured out how to do chat bots without actually having to do prompts so you just think thought you visualize mentally and, and it's still not going to work because people are going to be visualizing really random things and then they're going to be like the end results will be like why does this interface look like it's made out of breakfast cereal I was hungry at the time
3: <laughs>
0: <Just>. <laughs>
3: so that's that's our future programmers that. He's capable of imagining better. That's, that's his only requirement. He can imagine in a focused way to communicate with this AI.
2: <laughs> right. Well and be able to and be able to imagine what's not going to just make one person happy because that's the other challenging part. We're not answering to one person one yeah. user. Like usually the person who's the product owner is is not going to be using the end result. They're usually just representing and usually badly people yeah. who are going to be using the system. And in reality, there's, you know, a thousand people that need to use the system. And there's out of that, basically 995 different user stories.
1: Oh. Designed by committees, whole nother level of torture. So, so
2: you have to have a person, whether that be a product strategist or a business analyst or a software engineer who can go in and have all those conversations with those thousand different people, or at least a subset of them and figure out what do they say they want? And then not only strike out of that, what they really want, but then find the commonalities across all the people and then say, okay, so what the majority of people are
3: wanting is basically this. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think that's, that's the biggest part of the job, figuring that out. What, what, what's the most important thing or, I mean, and what's holding people up the most.
2: So does that make our industry one gigantic escape room puzzle? (laughs) And a very badly designed one at
3: that. (laughs) Yes, it's a a very badly designed one, but I think it is in that way. Yes, it's a a giant room with a bunch of boxes that don't connect together, yet people want them to connect together, but they can't tell you how they're supposed to connect together, what they want. And on each side of the room is another guy giving you a different story for it. And there is no actual exit, but you think there is. So yes, I mean, let's that's It's an The exit is when you finally give up and just retire. I think right? so. Yeah, retire. There's a, there's a door labeled. It just has an age check on it. That's that's the way you get out. You, exactly. You survive long you get out enough out of the room.
2: Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> congratulations, you made it out of the room without having a heart attack. Yeah, you. you. Here, have a pension. <laughs> Well, hopefully, we may have actually lost it in crypto. (laughs) Yeah. And then, and then, and then, but then the funny, the funny ending of the story is then we go and we go build things ourselves and enjoy it until we decide to actually share it with someone else. And then we're right back in the same stupid room. And it's like that old Jim Henson movie of the guy trapped in the box. Like you can never get
3: out. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, programming on your own, like just writing code is like you have that advantage that's, you don't have conflicting requirements. Okay, babe, sometimes you do. But the moment you show it to somebody, that's the first thing in their minds. But what if... <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, dear. I wrote an article years ago, and I think I need to resurface it again. I wrote an article years ago called The Cranky Developer's Manifesto. And it's a proposal for a, a document that you can put right, aside, right alongside your license and your project. And it literally just says, I'm doing this for fun. I reserve the right to ignore your feature requests. To ignore your bug reports, to ignore your pull requests, and to literally just disregard what you want out of this code. (laughs) So I'll I'll kind of wind up with this, then: if you could build anything and be guaranteed that no one will give you a single bug report or a feature request, but just, I know this will never happen, but hey, while we're on fantasy, Uh, just use and enjoy your product, but never ask a single thing of you, what would you build? If you're the sole stakeholder.
3: You know, I'm so focused on games now. I just kind of want to say I, I build games just because they're fun and people have fun with them. And and you could just obviously tell people, well, you can't have feedback. You just fun enjoy it and go on. And I think that's, that's where I'm at now. Otherwise, I've always said I would, what, I always want to develop, I always want to develop a proper issue system. This has bugged me that there is no good issue system out there. Every one I've used has always been a fault. And that would be my my prime business useful utility that I think I'd want to develop is that one, give enough time and get it working correctly. And I think I know all the use cases from my own experience. I I think that would be a nice one. We need to talk. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody want to refill? (laughs) Sure, I'll take one more. We'll just finish off here. So lovely. Yeah.
1: Absolutely, you, Boyan. Do you want to refill of your espresso uh, without coffee? No, no, no. I have to ride the unicorn to home. He's gonna sell you a yeah. script. More, you know that, right? Well, unicorn's got to do what unicorn's got to do. Absolutely. I hope Annie figures out a way to cut the sitcom short
2: because that laugh track I've been hearing in the background is starting to drive me batty. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been awesome, and I'll go get that uh, refill, Doctor. Alright.
3: Thanks very much.
0: Bye. Hunters Cafe, this is Jess. Well, we're open 24-7 at Cafe. You can also find us on LinkedIn and on Mastodon as Barghunters at Hackidum.io. hmm The music is provided by audionautics.com. We have a link on our website. No, I don't think so. Oh, no, we don't actually have a television show. The unicorn has been... Yes, I imagine it's very distressing for that to cut into your Gilligan's Island Marathon. We're working on resolving that interference. No, we don't understand the jokes, either. Understood. Have a great day. Annie, that's the third call today about the unicorns sitcom crossing signals with a public access cable. Well, no more. I swapped the unicorn's bubble tea out for the chamomile. That'll short out his studio audience. (laughs) See? Nothing to it.
2: Oh dry up your ratings are abysmal anyway.